Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. I've been skimping a little bit on uh, cases in the last few months because we've had those big Supreme Court decisions and then we had the introduction of artificial intelligence into the public safety world. But this month, I'm going to get back to cases. Uh, and I probably will get through about six of these that illustrate, in some cases, some developing legal principles, and in other cases, service reinforcement for some principles that we should all be very comfortable with. Uh, let's start with one of those developing issues, and this one's out of Florida. It involves a corrections officer by the name of Samuel Velez Ortiz. Uh, he's a corrections officer with the Florida Department of Corrections at DOC in Florida. They have random drug testing for employees. Uh, Velez Ortiz gets picked in May of 2021, and he tests positive for marijuana. Velez Ortiz then presents to the Department of Corrections his Florida-issued qualifying medical marijuana patient identification card. The Department of Corrections looks at the card and says, oh, well, that's kind of interesting, but we have a strict policy against all marijuana use, including medical marijuana, and we are going to fire you. Velez Ortiz requests a hearing uh, and argues that he had a constitutional right to use medical marijuana and that he had never come to work when he was impaired. A hearing officer and then the Public Employment Relations Commission and now the Florida Court of Appeals said, interesting arguments, but you're fired. What's the court's rationale? The court says, quote, the law requires all correctional officers to possess good moral character. To possess good moral character, a correctional officer cannot engage in any activity that could give rise to a felony conviction, even if he is never charged with the offense. These requirements lead us to believe Velez Ortiz cannot use medical marijuana and maintain his certification as a correctional officer, even if the right to privacy found in Article 10, Section 29 of the Florida Constitution extends as far as he contends. Okay, let me pause there for a little bit. What is the... Court of Appeals really talking about when it's giving us this citation to Article 10, Section 29 of the Florida Constitution. Well, Florida is one of several states where there is a specifically articulated constitutional right of privacy. You'll remember that there is no such articulated right to privacy in the federal constitution. And instead, in the first case in which the U.S. Supreme Court 
did find a right to privacy in the Constitution, uh, a case called Griswold versus Connecticut that dealt with a Connecticut law criminalizing the possession of contraceptive uh, material by married individuals. In Griswold, the court said, you know what? We find a right to privacy in the penumbra of several constitutional amendments. That sent uh, scads of law students all around the country scurrying to find out what in the world penumbra meant. It, it, it turns out it means something like the shade that is cast by a cloud. Although I'm kind of making that up from 30, 40 years ago, but that's what I think it means. So what amendments to the Constitution uh, give us a at least an inferred right to privacy? The court says the Third Amendment, Third Amendment, what's the Third Amendment? We know the Second Amendment, we know the Fourth Amendment, it's the Third Amendment. The Third Amendment is the right to not be forced to quarter soldiers in your house. You can see a little bit of privacy in there, right? So the court cites the Third Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, prohibition on uh, improper searches and seizures. You can see some privacy in there as well, right? Fifth Amendment, due process. The court thinks that there is a right to be let alone notion of the due process clause in the Constitution. Uh, and then all the way to the Ninth Amendment. Uh, and the Ninth Amendment is one of the two catch-all clauses at the end of the Bill of Rights. And it says, whatever is not taken away by the Constitution, those are rights that the people own. So the Supreme Court in Griswold says that's where we find a right to privacy. Now, what's going on with that right to privacy right now at the federal level? Well, it's kind of seriously under attack, right? That's what the abortion decision was about. Some of the conservative members of the Supreme Court have publicly advocated that Griswold was wrongly decided, uh, and they've already decided that Roe versus Wade, which was based on Griswold, was wrongly decided. So the right to privacy at the federal level, a personally held civil right to privacy, uh, may be in trouble as long as we have this six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. But there are some states where the state constitutions don't take this penumbra sort of approach, but instead they simply say all of our citizens have a right to privacy. And Florida is one of those states. And in fact, Florida, uh, the Florida Supreme Court back in the day uh, has held that the privacy rights under the Florida Constitution are greater than, more expansive than, the privacy rights under the federal Constitution. Held that in the context of an abortion case. Whether it would do so today, given the politics of the Florida Supreme Court, that's another question. Uh, so back to our hero in this case, Velez Ortiz, uh, he is saying, the right to privacy should include using 
medical marijuana because after all, it's a medicine. My doctor has prescribed it. Uh, government, you have no business getting in between me and my doctor. Uh, and he actually has a case, I don't know if he cited it, but there is a case uh, that supports him on that. It's an old case. It comes from the Alaska Supreme Court where there is an articulated right to privacy. And in a case called, well, I think it's called Rabin versus State of Alaska, way back in the 1970s when I was in law school, uh, the Alaska Supreme Court held that the right to personally possess marijuana was a right protected by the privacy clause of the Alaska Constitution. And of course, some great portion of law students on reading that opinion in the mid-1970s decided Alaska was where they wanted to go practice law. Well, Velez Ortiz uh, is making the same argument you saw in Rabin only the Florida Court of Appeals isn't accepting it. And the reason it's not accepting it is that marijuana is still a scheduled drug that may not be validly prescribed under federal law. And possession of a tiny amount of marijuana is still a felony under federal law. And here's the way the court concludes his uh, decision, because it's a decision, because Velez Ortiz uses medical marijuana to treat his post-traumatic stress disorder. He's a regular user of marijuana. Although he can legally possess and use medical marijuana under state law, his use of it is illegal under federal law. Accordingly, he cannot lawfully possess a firearm. Each time he does, he's committing a felony. And each year, the Department of Corrections requires him to possess a firearm to qualify. He can't do the job, says the court. Termination upheld. Now, things may be changing in Florida. It's kind of hard to tell. The politics in Florida are just very confusing sometimes, um, but it appears that uh, since the Republicans have taken charge of the major elected offices in Florida, they have uh, not just the governor and the two senators, but they've got a majority of both houses in the Florida legislature, uh, so the Republicans up and down government in Florida right now. Uh, the Democrats are figuring, you know, we need kind of a clever way to get back in. And so the Democrats are now circulating two ballot measures in Florida for signature. One is recreational use of marijuana, and the other is no restrictions on early abortions. And both of those would be committed to the Florida Constitution. Uh, now, how that goes, who knows? The Democrats obviously hope that's going to turn out a lot of Democratic voters and maybe even wean some Republican voters over. But Florida may be becoming like New Jersey, where there have been some difficult questions faced about 
uh, recreational marijuana and whether an employer can punish employees in a disciplinary sense for the legal use of recreational marijuana. Stay tuned. Okay, up to Pennsylvania now for a case that serves as a reminder of some basic principles. The principles here are those of the rule in Weingarten versus National Labor Relations Board. That's the rule that gives a union the right to represent employees who are facing what could reasonably be construed as the possibility of disciplinary action as a result of an interview. Uh, and, you know, sure as rain in Oregon in October, uh, we're going to get a couple dozen Weingarten cases a year, all involving public safety employees all around the country, with employers or unions misunderstanding the Weingarten rule. This is a case of a union misunderstanding the rule. So what is the case? Uh, it involves a fellow named Derek Cruiser. Cruiser is the president of the Madison County Deputy Sheriff's Association in New York. And in February 2020, Cruiser needed a new uniform shirt. So he contacted the vendor up there in Madison County, an outfit called United Uniforms. And in particular, he was talking to Mitch Walker. Uh, and he ordered a new uniform shirt uh, from Mitch Walker. How could this go wrong, right? I mean, this sounds so bland so far. Okay, well, hang on. Uh, Cruiser then later follows up with Walker uh, because he doesn't get his shirt. He says, hey, Walker, where's my shirt? And Cruiser is advised by Walker that his sergeant, Sergeant Chad Chapman, had canceled the order. Uh, Cruiser then responds to Walker by saying something to the effect of, uh, quote, he's a fucking asshole, end quote, regarding Chapman, and says a few more things along that line uh, about Chapman. Boy, I hope that doesn't get me in trouble with uh, Apple Podcasts. Well, so be it, if it does. So the county eventually learns of Cruiser's conversation with uh, Walker. If you're going to insult your supervisor, probably rule number one is uh, make sure that the person you insult your supervisor to isn't going to call your supervisor and tell them about it. Anyway, Cruiser uh, is found out for this conversation, and the county directs Cruiser to meet with Chapman, his sergeant, and a lieutenant by the name of Lance Zaleski. When Cruiser arrives at the meeting, he immediately says, I want my union representative. He's told, no, quote, that's not going to happen, end quote. Cruiser then says, well, I at least want a witness. I want a fellow employee present for the meeting. And Zaleski and Chapman say, no. And then the meeting starts. And the meeting pretty much consists of Chapman and Zaleski handing Cruiser a pre-prepared letter of counseling. And Chapman, and I'm quoting here, pretty much reading the counseling memo verbatim. 
And what the counseling letter does is to discuss the various policies that the county believed Cruiser had violated with his statements to Walker and set out an improvement plan. Um, You can tell a lot about the labor relations environment in Madison County uh, by what's going on here, right? I mean, isn't this the sort of situation where you have an employee mouthing off to, you know, a vendor for the department? Isn't this a situation where you take the employee aside and say, don't do this again, as opposed to prepare a a memo of counseling or a letter of counseling and then come in and just instead of having a conversation, reading the memo to the employee, you can kind of tell things are tense in Madison County. So at any rate, they go through the interview, uh, and uh, when they get done, there's just virtually no questions that are asked by Chapman or Zalewski, and no answers uh, that are given by Cruiser. The association, and Cruiser's the acting president of the association, uh, the association files an improper practices charge, unfair labor practice charge, against the county with New York's Public Employment Relations Board. And what's the gravamen of the charge? It's that the denial of the representation request violated New York's equivalent uh, of the Weingarten rule. Uh, a hearings officer gets appointed for New York's PERV and listens to testimony for everybody, summarizes it in an opinion that, I kid you not, has over 100 footnotes. Why, oh, why do they do this? Uh, and the hearing officer concludes no violation of Weingarten, no denial, improper denial of representation. What's the analysis? And the hearing officer's analysis in this case, while long, is quite good. Uh, The hearing officer says, quote, a demand for representation was made by the public employee here. The employer failed uh, to permit or refused to allow the employee representation. Uh, That would seem like uh, a Weingarten violation. And, says the hearings officer, quote, at the time of the employer's questioning, it reasonably appeared that the employee may have been the subject or target of potential disciplinary action. Now, uh, let's pause for a moment there. That reasonable belief is one of the elements of the Weingarten rule. Uh, Employees are entitled to representation when they are questioned by the employer about a matter that the employee believes could reasonably result in discipline. In this situation, uh, you know, using uncomplimentary terms to describe your sergeant to a third-party vendor, uh, could Cruiser reasonably believe that discipline was going to result? Uh, The hearing officer says, yeah, going into the meeting, Cruiser could believe that. But then the hearing officer goes wrong and maybe, I think, goes awry. Uh, Back to his opinion, quote, although an employee's perceptions are relevant 
to our inquiry, our primary focus is on the objective facts in the record. Those facts include the subject matter and the context of the questioning, the verbal and written statements made by the employer prior to the questioning, the verbal exchange between the employer representative and the employee, the timing and venue of the questioning, and other factors. Here, the objective facts in the record fail to demonstrate an interaction where representation rights attach. Why? Why is that the case? And the hearing officers just said a cruiser could reasonably believe the discipline could result from this meeting. Okay, here's the rationale. The evidence demonstrates that Cruiser was called to a meeting with Chapman and Zaleski to be presented with a pre-written counseling memorandum. There is differing testimony regarding what, if any, questions were asked of Cruiser. Cruiser says he was asked questions, but when asked what questions, the only question he could recall was that he was asked whether or not he made the statement. To the extent that any question or questions were asked of Cruiser at the meeting, I find they were not investigatory and the delivery of the counseling memo was a fait accompli. Okay, so no Weingarten rights, no right to representation. But let's think about this one for a little while. It seems, it's clear, the hearing officer says going into that meeting, Cruiser could reasonably believe that discipline could result. And what happened at the meeting? What happened at the meeting, of course, was the reading of the memo that says this is a letter of counseling. But also there's at least one question. And the question is whether or not Cruiser made the statement. Isn't that one question enough to warrant the application of the right to representation? I think most labor boards would agree to that. And I think when this gets beyond the hearing officer level in New York, if it does, if it goes to the full Public Employment Relations Board, I think the Public Employment Relations Board may see this case differently than the hearing officer. The whole thrust of labor boards on these right to representation questions is, if you're gonna make a mistake, err on the side of allowing representation where you don't have to. Employers, what's the harm of a union representative? If the representative misbehaves, you can kick them out, but what is the harm in the first instance of getting the union representative in the room. And I can tell you from the standpoint of representing employees and unions my whole career, uh, there are many times when the function of the union rep actually aids the employer, aids the employer in getting an act accurate statement out, uh, one that doesn't wander and the like. So. At any rate, this is, a, I think, a case uh, or an instance of a case that starts off right 
but ends up taking a slightly wrong turn. Next up, another privacy case. Uh, this one comes out of Utah. Uh, I have long said that one of the joys of my practice of law uh, is that when I think about various case examples to give, anonymizing them, of course, I never have to make anything up. And I don't because it'll happen somewhere in the public safety world. Whatever it is will happen. And this Utah case is an example of precisely that. This is a recent decision of the Utah Court of Appeals that asks a question that I think very few people had fought to pose. Is there a privacy right for a corrections officer to masturbate in a bathroom while on duty? Uh, believe it or not, they don't cover that in law school, even in the right to privacy section. So this is a case that involves Ron DeMille, a longer corrections officer with uh, the Utah Department of Corrections. In early 2019, the department uh, starts an internal affairs investigation and it twice interviews DeMille regarding what it refers to as, quote, an allegation of lewdness while at work, end quote. Uh, during one of the interviews, DeMille is asked whether he had ever masturbated in front of a female coworker or anyone else uh, while at work. He answers the question, no, uh, and then he volunteers something. Uh, by the way, uh, our advice to employees facing an internal affairs interview is don't ever volunteer anything. Um, but anyway, DeMille hadn't gotten that advice. What does he volunteer? He says, look, while I've never masturbated in front of a female coworker or anyone else while at work, there were frequent occasions when I would get so turned on by flirty conversations with female coworkers that I would retreat into a staff restroom and masturbate to receive uh, or to relieve myself. Um, and you, you just imagine being, if he had a union rep there, just imagine being the union rep when he volunteers this information. Well, as a result of the interviews and DeMille's spontaneous comment, the department sustains an allegation of unprofessional behavior and issues DeMille, get ready, a letter of reprimand. Uh, that's all, not even a suspension. And following the issuance of the letter, DeMille retains his position with the department. All's well and good as far as DeMille is concerned until the Utah Peace Officers Standards and Training Council finds out about all this. You can sort of imagine how that could have happened uh, and recommends that DeMille's Peace Officer certification be suspended uh, not revoked, suspended for a period of four years. DeMille uh, requests that the allegations against him be dismissed, requests a formal hearing before an administrative law judge. What's DeMille's argument before the ALJ? Said, hey, 
Remember Lawrence versus Texas, the Supreme Court's decision uh, involving the criminalization of homosexual conduct? Uh, in Lawrence, the court said there was, quote, no legitimate reason why what somebody does in a private bathroom should be constrained by the state, end quote. That's good law, said DeMille, and that means I should not have my post certificate suspended at all. And the ALJ disagrees. Uh, the ALJ concludes that DeMille had engaged in sexual conduct while on duty and had violated Utah law in doing so and adopts the ALJ's recommendation to suspend DeMille's peace officer's certification. You'd think the case might end there, but no. DeMille appealed to the Utah Court of Appeals. Uh, and uh, the Court of Appeals upholds the issuance of the suspension. Uh, why? And I'm quoting, the ALJ correctly determined that the privacy considerations in Lawrence versus Texas weren't presented here. DeMille's actions occurred at his place of employment, a state correctional facility, and did not implicate a privacy interest of the sort that obtains when one is in one's own home. Further, although the ALJ observed that DeMille may have a good argument for an extension of the right to privacy beyond the context of sexual activity at home, uh, DeMille did not and does not here present any type of meaningful analysis of Lawrence or develop a substantive argument that Lawrence should be expanded to include workplace restrooms. So suspension upheld. Now, let's think about this decision for just a moment uh, because this decision isn't turning on DeMille's activity of masturbation. It is turning on whether he has a right to privacy in a restroom at work. And the court ends up saying he doesn't have at least the same level of privacy at work in a restroom as he does at home. Is that really correct? There are actually quite a few cases where employers set up camera systems. Uh, some of the cameras pointed into a locker room or a restroom uh, where there were specific findings by courts that there was a right to privacy in the workplace. There are cases uh, that indicate that an individual's personal car or briefcase uh, or purse is protected by the constitutional right to privacy even while at work. Uh, there is this old saying that uh, bad cases make bad law. Uh, well, this is one I think where the court deserved to give the issue of privacy a bit more attention, but ended up being distracted by the facts. So I've been beating a drum for many months maybe many years, that employees looking to vindicate their constitutional rights 
ought to be thinking about being in state court rather than federal court owing to the generally conservative nature of, first of all, the Supreme Court, but also the lower federal courts. Uh, here's a case that I think is an excellent example. This comes out of uh, the city of St. Louis Police Department and a police officer by the name of Louis Nace. Uh, Nace was originally assigned to what's called the nuisance unit. I think we have one of those in our house. And, no, never mind. Uh, assigned to the nuisance unit as an animal abuse investigator. Five years into Nays' tenure, uh, the police chief, a uh, fellow named John Hayden, appointed Major Angela Kuntz to oversee the nuisance unit. Two weeks later, Kuntz has transferred Nays out of the unit uh, to a patrol position and replaced him with a gay officer. Nace brings a lawsuit, and he contends that Kuntz openly favors gay officers and transferred him because he's straight. And his lawsuit is uh, basically under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act for sexual discrimination, in this case, sexual orientation uh, uh, discrimination. Uh, he tacks on some claims under the Missouri Human Rights Act and also the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. But from a legal standpoint, the real action in the case is under Title VII. So you need to understand something about the basic burden of proof under Title VII uh, in order to justify these workplace discrimination cases. Employees have to show that they were the subject of an adverse employment action uh, in order to bring a successful um, sexual or racial orientation or racial discrimination lawsuit under Title VII. Uh, you have to show that something adverse happened to you that would, uh, depending upon what the underlying constitutional right is, would deter other employees from making a particular complaint or taking a particular position. Uh, so you need to show an adverse employment action. When this case gets to the Eighth Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is, by my count, one of the three most conservative federal courts of appeals in the country, when it gets to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the question that the court focuses on with nays is, did you suffer an adverse employment action? And nays says, yeah, I did. I was transferred. That means I had different job responsibilities, my hours of work were changed, and I lost out on overtime opportunities that I routinely worked when I was a member of the nuisance unit. And the Court of Appeals says, not enough. The court takes the position that, quote, after the transfer, the sergeant's salary, rank, and potential for promotion remained the same. 
we have held that an adverse employment action is a tangible change in working conditions that produces a material employment disadvantage. Well, this shows you kind of how far uh, courts are sometimes removed from everyday working life uh, that happens in a public safety agency or on the floor of a factory or wherever it might be. The court is saying that a, a transfer that results in different job responsibilities to a less desirable unit, that's not an adverse employment action. Would an employee feel the same way? Well, maybe, um, depending on the transfer. But remember the facts here. Nays is also alleging that he is now working non-standard hours. Non-standard hours is, is really a different way of saying working night hours or working rotating shifts or the like. Would an employee believe that an involuntary transfer to a shift comprised of non-standard hours is an adverse employment action? Well, yeah, I, I think like pretty much every employee would believe that, but not the guys and gals in the black robes on the Eighth Circuit. And what about the third claim that Nays made, uh, that he lost out on previous overtime opportunities? That's money, right? And isn't the loss of a regular source of income an adverse employment action? That, quoting from the court, is a tangible change in working conditions that produces a material employment disadvantage? I've known employees who could tell you to the penny how much overtime they earned in their last pay period without looking at their pay stub. Employees think overtime is a material employment advantage or the lack of it a disadvantage. But, uh, you know, the Eighth Circuit in this case is, this decision is going to be final. The Supreme Court will never take a look at this case. Uh, and the result, the transfer is upheld, even on the assumption that Nays was transferred because of his sexual orientation. Uh, and this is the reason why I keep cautioning, at least until we see the complexion of the federal courts change, that employees who are going to be bringing these kind of suits you better be thinking long and hard. You better be talking with your lawyers long and hard about whether these suits should be filed in state court and not in federal court. My last case for the month, uh, I want to go back to Pennsylvania, and I want to talk about a question that has been debated for well over 20 years. Uh, and there's really a lot of law in this area, but it's not well understood. And the question is, when is an employer liable for coworker sexual harassment? Now, there's really kind of 
two forms of coworker sexual harassment. And it depends upon the power that the person doing the harassing has. If the person who is doing the harassing is a supervisor, employer liability is actually fairly easy to establish uh, under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. But most of these cases don't involve supervisors. They involve employee-on-employee sexual harassment. And as this case from Pennsylvania is going to show, it's almost impossible for an employer, a reasonably halfway conscious employer, to be liable for employee-on-employee sexual harassment. So on to the facts of this case. This involves uh, Jennifer Stein, and she is a corrections officer with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, and she's working in a penitentiary, it's called Penitentiary Canaan, uh, in Waymart, Pennsylvania. And she's been working uh, in that role, well, since about uh, 2012 or so. Starting in 2014, she began to intermittently date another correctional officer at the prison, Jory Eisenman. Uh, And the two of them uh, end their relationship for good uh, three years later in 2017. Uh, It's sort of an on-again, off-again relationship, and they finally uh, break up in 2017. Eisenman does not handle the breakup well. on the morning of August 8th, 2017, after weeks of badgering Stein with phone calls, he follows Stein in from the prison parking lot, corners her in the officer's mailroom, and begins screaming at her to return his furniture. Uh, the screaming involved calling her a whore. Uh, Eisenman puffs up his chest uh, to shove her and prevent her from leaving. Uh, eventually, Stein escapes the room. Eisenman follows her down the corridor, continues to insult her until she enters a lieutenant's office. So this is uh, very serious sexual harassment, right? Stems out of a romantic relationship that has failed. Uh, there's some improper touching. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, use of Uh, sexual name-calling. This is uh, kind of classic sexual harassment. So uh, Stein goes into the lieutenant's office, and the lieutenant says, you got to report this. And she does. Uh, With her supervisor's permission, she leaves work uh, to get a temporary restraining order where Pennsylvania's equivalent of that. It's called an emergency petition for protection from abuse. Uh, She gets the TRO. Uh, Before the incident, uh, Stein had not reported any sexual harassment by Eisenman to anyone in her chain of command. And this one incident where she ends up in the lieutenant's office is the first time uh, the department learns of tensions between the two of them. And the warden then kind of springs into action. 
uh, in response to Eisenman's, uh, the report of Eisenman's harassment, the warden formed a threat assessment committee to investigate. The committee interviewed both Stein and Eisenman, and the warden approved a personal protection plan for Stein. In seeking to separate them at work, this plan brought about sweeping changes in Eisenman's workday, uh, but left Stein exactly where she was. And that way they wouldn't have any contact with each other. Stein's post and her work schedule, none of those changed. Uh, the Bureau of Prison transferred Eisenman to a minimum security satellite camp located a mile away from the penitentiary, changed his hours, and prohibited him from entering the penitentiary without informing his supervisor and obtaining an escort. And uh, the prison also issued a cease and desist order to Eisenman under which he had to avoid unprofessional contact with uh, Stein. Let me pause here. Been uh, a little bit negative about some employer decisions in this podcast. I'm not going to be negative about this. This is exactly what an employer should be doing when you have a proven incident of sexual harassment or racial harassment. Okay, back to what's going on at the prisons. Uh, the uh, department also orders that both officers get training on sexual harassment and Stein is directed to report any workplace contact, contact that she has with Eisenman. So far, so good. Then things start to unravel a little bit. About 10 months after this plan is implemented, Stein takes a leave of absence for a work-related injury. Uh, and soon after she's gone on this leave of absence, uh, the department, which is suffering uh, staffing shortages, like pretty much every correctional facility in the United States, the department returns Eisenman to the penitentiary where he had worked with Stein. It notifies Stein of that development. And several months later, Stein's workers' comp leave is over. She returns to work in the penitentiary's administration building. She has a handful of workplace interactions with Eisenman. Uh, Eisenman isn't, like, saying anything to her. He just glares at her with his arms folded. And he would say things to other colleagues like, quote, here comes your girl coming for property, end quote. Stein has had it. She brings a lawsuit, says she's the victim of a hostile work environment. Uh, and the case ends up before the Federal Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And the court does a good job of laying out the standards for when an employer is liable for worker-on-worker -worker sexual harassment. And I'm quoting, an employer can be held liable for harassment by one of the victim's non-supervisory co-workers only in two scenarios. One, the employer failed to provide a reasonable avenue for complaint. Or two, the employer knew or should have known of the harassment and failed to take prompt and appropriate remedial action. The court says 
None of that's present here. Uh, did the employer have a reasonable avenue for complaint? Yeah, uh, and Stein took it. Uh, she talked to her lieutenant. And when she talked to her lieutenant, that turned out to be very reasonable because the earth started moving in this prison once she talked to the uh, lieutenant. This uh, threat assessment committee was formed, a plan was formed, put into place. Uh, this was an employer that had a reasonable avenue for complaint. Incidentally, it's this requirement uh, for these sorts of claims. That's one of the reasons you have employers posting on bulletin boards where employees should go to make harassment complaints. Okay, second element. Did the employer know or should have known of the harassment and fail to take prompt and appropriate remedial action? And the court said, not any part of that that the employer fails here. The employer didn't know of the harassment. Stein doesn't even contest that. And there's no argument that somehow or another the employer should have known of the harassment. And the employer did take prompt and appropriate remedial action. You separate the employees, separate them in different facilities, have them work on different shifts, give them retraining. All of those things are appropriate remedial action. And the court says, look, the proof's in the pudding here. Quote, in addition to its promptness, the Bureau of Prisons' response was effective. Stein and Eisenman did not have any interactions at work for over two years. And the interactions they had after that time were sporadic and did not rise to the level of harassments. Those episodes consisted of a caustic quip, unfriendly body language, an email that, at least on its face, was work-related. And the court said, well, the Bureau of Prisons did what it should have done, and it was effective. It prevented further sexual harassment. So again, nothing new in this case. Uh, it's just a reminder of what the standards are under the law for when an employer could be liable for employee-on-employee -employee sexual harassment. Well, that's it for the August 2023 uh, First Thursday podcast. Uh, hope to see you in Las Vegas in uh, September for our grievances, past practice, and arbitration seminar. I'll be speaking, I think, the entirety of the first day of that seminar. And we've got exciting seminars coming up for you for the rest of the year. Uh, October, collective bargaining in Nashville, and November, advanced police discipline in Las Vegas. So, uh, with that, I hope all of you have a great rest of the summer and that it's not too boiling hot. Uh, and with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.